We have only been in the book of Genesis for, I asked Lori before I came up here, how long have we been in Genesis? June of 2012, we started Genesis. We're ripping right through the scriptures, I tell you what, we're, we're on our way. But we're going to finish Genesis this morning. So Genesis chapter 50, uh, we're going to look at the last few verses. But Jacob, he has died Joseph has Jacob embalmed, and a great funeral possession goes up from Egypt to Cana to bury Jacob at the family burial cave. And this is where Abraham and Sarah already are buried, Isaac and Rebekah, and Leah, Jacob's uh, first wife, is there. But Jacob has made Joseph swear, carry my body up to the promised land for burial. Jacob is not an Egyptian. He is a Hebrew, and he wants nothing to do with Egypt in his death. And he makes the governor of Egypt swear, do not bury me in Egypt. And that governor, of course, is his own son, Joseph. So, hey, son, do not bury me here. And we read of Jacob's funeral and him being embalmed and his remains being carried back up to the promised land for burial. And this kind of falls on deaf ears for us Americans, and I don't think we fully grasp the importance uh, that this is to Jacob and his family. But Jacob, he's a Hebrew, and he demands that you bury me in my homeland or God's promised land to his people. And so let's pick up in Genesis chapter 50. We'll read verse 22 through 26. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Mahir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from his children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. Thus we have the death of Joseph. Joseph, like his dad, he wants his remains carried to Canaan for burial. And Joseph's final words to his family, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. And Joseph is speaking of Egypt. Now Egypt has been good to Joseph. He was royalty there. But he wanted to go home for his burial. And for 400 years, Joseph's bones will lie in state in Egypt. But when all the children of Egypt, uh, Israel leave Egypt, they carry Joseph's bones with them. And here's the legacy of Joseph. He's been God's provider for his people, Israel. And then verse 20, let me paraphrase verse 20 for you. 
God has ordained all the events of Joseph's life in order to save many people. What appeared to be cruel, unusual punishment towards Joseph was of God. And it was God preparing Joseph to save his family and really save the Egyptian people from hunger. And as we conclude Genesis, we should understand all of Scripture is written from the perspective of Israel, this tiny little nation, the promised land that Joseph and Jacob want to be buried in. Israel, it's a small area, and God chose to start the Jewish race in Israel. Israel is a very special place for any Jew or Christian. And our Lord Jesus took on human life in a little village in Bethlehem, which is just a short drive from Jerusalem, about seven miles. And Jesus' entire ministry was in the confines of the little nation of Israel. And when you think about today, we think nothing of jumping on a plane and going from one continent to another uh, in our modern way of travel. But Israel was a tiny little nation and still is. It's from the Red Sea in the south to Mount Hermon in the north, from the Jordan River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And these boundaries, these in given, you know, the boundaries, uh, which are always in dispute, seems like, they're about the size of New Jersey. If you've ever been to New Jersey, it's not real big. But uh, this is where God has established his chosen people in the land of Israel. Israel was known as the crossroads of, the, of Africa to Asia and up to Europe. All the trade routes went through Israel, and it made Israel an extremely valuable piece of real estate. And Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, is divided, even today, between three major religion groups, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And it's a holy city to all of these religions. So in studying Genesis... We see God laying the foundation of his interaction with man in the book of Genesis. First, you have creation. God openly declaring that he created this world, he created man, he created our universe. And man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Science desperately tries to give the universe a very old age. I think we're up to 13.8 billion years now and growing. <laughs> Cosmologists, they try to look back in time through telescopes and as such to determine the age of the world. Now I have a question that any Christian should ponder. Consider that God created Adam fully mature. He had great intelligence. He brought, God brought all the animals to, to Adam and he named them and he kept them in species. And Adam 
was born with intelligence. He didn't have to learn the way we learn today uh, from memory or from experience. Adam had intelligence from day one of his life. Um, if God could create a man with built-in intelligence, couldn't he create a universe that already had things in place like light that travels from star to star? Couldn't it have already been created in place? I think it could have. <laughs> I don't have any trouble with that. Um, plant life. Adam came into a garden that had already been planted by God. All the plants were already mature, and they these plants had the ability to reproduce, and they still do. You know, oak trees drop acorns. You get little oaks and that kind of thing. And I find it more difficult in my limited mind and thinking to believe in creation versus millions and millions of years a fortuitous chance. Can't grab it. <laughs> and that is promoted by evolutionists. And then we have the fall of man. Very early in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, God, God's perfect environment, we have Eve being deceived by the serpent, and Satan deceives her, and Eve eats of the tree of knowledge, and Adam follows shortly. They only had one do not. One do not. You would think, I could live if I only had one do not. I could make it. <laughs> but uh, this one prohibition that God has upon man, Adam and Eve, they break that command, and they break it in short order. Now consider that they lived in the perfect environment. And before they sinned, before Adam and Eve sinned, they had never seen death. They had never seen death of a plant. They had never seen death of an animal. And Adam and Eve never had to recover from any illness. No sickness. They didn't even get uh, allergy symptoms, you know. No getting over a cold or the flu. They had perfect bodies in a perfect environment. They did not even suffer the pains of growing old. I can't prove this one, but I don't even think Adam and Eve had to sleep at night. I don't think they had to take rest. <laughs> you know, Why would you have to take rest if this old body didn't require it? They, were, they had glorified bodies. But this one prohibition that they had was soon broken when Satan succeeded in tempting Eve, and, of course, Adam followed shortly. And thus we have creation, and we have the fall of man, two major beliefs of the Christian faith, two major tenets, and they happen in the first three chapters of Genesis. By the sixth chapter of Genesis, the world has experienced a great population explosion, and sin has increased tremendously. And this sin requires God to bring about judgment. Sin requires God to do that. So God tells Noah, build an ark, for he will, he will surely destroy the earth. And it takes Noah over a hundred years to build the ark. 
Then in chapter 11, we have Abraham being born. And in chapters 11 through 50, we have the details of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, living out their lives and the details of their lives before God. The first 10 chapters of Genesis cover creation, the fall of man, the flood, Noah, and with all the destruction. By the way, you've heard we're, we're going to get the movie Noah coming up short. I hope they do a good job on that. I hope I don't have to sit there and be the, that's not in scripture. <laughs> I tend to do that. My wife will tell you, I talk to those TV programs at home. And she reminds me, Don, they can't hear you. <laughs> Tells you where I'm at. But anyway, but we have 40 chapters of Genesis and it's God dealing with three men, basically, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis, the book of beginning, goes into great detail of these men and their lives, and you get Joseph in there too. So we have much to take from Genesis and God's dealing with man. Forty chapters of God dealing with man, three generations, and only 10 chapters of creation, fall, and flood. And this shows us, there, there's a lesson here, and it shows us that God is clearly the God of relationships, and he cares what goes on in the lives of his people. That's Genesis. Now let me take you to the end, to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. So if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 22. We'll look at the church at Laodicea. This is the last church of what they call the church age. And it's known as the lukewarm church. So Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. They are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each of these churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation represent what we call the church age. 
Laodicea is considered the last of the churches in the church age. Laodicea is the last church before Jesus raptures his church, all of us. And therefore we hear Jesus' last words before the end of the age. And it's good for us to study this. Laodicea was a wealthy city. They were self-sufficient. They had, uh, they had a tremendous earthquake hit them in A.D. 66. Rome offered to help them rebuild their city, and they refused to help, said, hey, we're okay. We can rebuild it ourselves. We don't need your help. And so they were wealthy in that regard. But Laodicea, their water supply came from a hot springs about five miles away from their city, and it came through an aqueduct system above ground. Nothing like a warm glass of water on a hot day. You know, that was their water supply. In verse 15, the Laodiceans were very familiar with lukewarm. Jesus identifies himself as the faithful and true witness from the beginning of creation. The same creation that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. But now Jesus, our creator, he closes out his word to man in the last book of the Bible, telling us he is the creator. Creation is a constant theme throughout scripture. God wants us, mankind, to know he created the universe and he created us. He wants us to know that. Evolution and those that believe in evolution simply call God a liar. It's that simple. Do not buy into evolution. It is a lie. And God wants us to know that. Back to Jesus' word. He says to Laodicea, I know your works. I know all about you, and you're neither cold or hot. You Laodiceans are just like your city. You are lukewarm. And we hear Jesus say, something is kind of peculiar. I wish that you were cold or hot. Because God can deal with coldness and he can deal with hotness. It's the lukewarm that think they're okay and don't need God. But he says, but because you are lukewarm... I will, it's got to be a misprint. I will spew you out of my mouth. You want a literal interpretation? Projectile vomit. It's what Jesus is talking about. That's how sick the lukewarm church makes him, that he projectile vomits. Pretty graphic. Jesus is saying, you make me literally ill. And this church does not even know that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They're so deceived that they think they're rich and wealthy and have need of nothing. You look at Laodicea and you think, how could a church get that out of touch with their founder? 
with Jesus. How could they be that out of touch with Jesus who's head of the church? It makes you wonder. And from the outside, this church at Laodicea, they look like they're thriving. They look like they're the church you'd want to go to. And it appears that they are successful. But by God's standards, they are wretched and poor. Now, I wouldn't be a preacher worth my salt. <laughs> That's an old term. Shows you I'm old. Salt. You know where that term came from? Worth your salt? They would put a little salt in bread, in a loaf of bread, just a touch of salt to give it flavor. So when they talk about you're not worth your salt, that's what they're talking about. Just a little salt and a loaf of bread. And I wouldn't be worth my salt if I did not point out that our society is consumed with sinful, pleasurable behavior. We're consumed with it. The sexual sin and promiscuity of America, it is daunting. TV and movies, they glamorize sex. They promote sex with no bounds. Adultery and fornication are so prevalent in our world that it is no longer newsworthy when someone commits adultery on their partner. Eh, that's just the way we are. The homosexual community they successfully promote their cause as being the norm. Recently, the scene in Arizona where their governor vetoed the law to be, and the law to be was that a person had a right to refuse service to anyone else on religious grounds. Well, she vetoed that. She caved into the pressures of the gay community and the National Football League jumped in there and they had their two cents to say and they said, well, we're not going to have the Super Bowl here next year if you pass that law. And she vetoed the law. And the clip that I, the news clip that I saw on TV, it was a vivid picture of Sodom and Gomorrah because they showed this gay community protesting loudly that these Christians had no right to refuse them service. As Americans, look around you, look at the news media, we are afraid to call sin, sin. It's not politically correct. And there are many churches around today that totally shy away from calling adultery, adultery, fornication, fornication, and are afraid to say that homosexuality is a sin. But Jesus openly rebuked Laodicea, telling them, you're wretched, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked, and you don't even know it. And Jesus says, Laodicea, listen to my words. They're like gold that is refined in fire. They're precious. And Jesus is not the least bit afraid to tell us the truth. Aren't you glad of that? You can go to Scripture and get the truth anytime you desire. Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke. 
and chasten. And then here's the conclusion. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Repentance is simply an opportunity for us to turn away from our sins. You do not have to continue down the road of sin. We can repent and turn away from them. Scripture is God's faithful word to mankind, and God does not care if it's politically correct or not. Makes you love the Lord. <laughs> God's word is truth. Therefore, let man adjust to his truth. And if that means repenting, repent. Now, I've gone through the whole passage on Laodicea, all for verse 20. I'm telling you ahead of time, we're going to settle in on verse 20. <laughs> Jesus is outside of the church, outside of a person's heart. Hear his words to the church and to any person. And he says, if you will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus suffered the cross to have a relationship, to have fellowship with mankind and for us to have fellowship with him and his father. Our Lord Jesus in his compassion he stands knocking at the door of hearts all over this world today. Jesus is outside of the church at Laodicea knocking outside of the church. So the great question becomes, is Jesus outside of our hearts knocking? I hope not. The modern church... They considered themselves wealthy, especially Laodicea. They're filled with self-sufficiency. They're filled with pride. Jesus desires for this church and for every human being. Don't just think it was them. He desires for every human being to either be hot or cold towards him. I wish that you were hot or cold because your current condition of lukewarm makes me sick. That's Jesus talking. Lukewarm Christianity makes the Lord sick. I can't help but think the modern church of America is neither cold nor hot. But the church is made up of individuals. Where does Jesus stand in your life and in my life? Is he inside or is he outside knocking saying, hey, let me have fellowship with you? Verse 22. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to the Lord. Amen. We conclude Genesis, and it's the same theme in Genesis as in Revelation. Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer.
Father God, first of all, I pray that you would convict any of us that are lukewarm. Lord, you've proven yourself time and again. We want to be hot towards you, Lord. We don't want to be cold. But you even prefer coldness over lukewarm. So don't let us deceive ourselves, Lord. Let us respond to you, to your spirit, and the love that you offer us. Let us be alive towards you, Lord. And may we have the testimony of you on our lips to anyone who will listen. You spoke to Laodicea as the last church. And Lord, we feel that we're right there. We feel that you could rapture your church at any moment. And when you do, Lord, we want to be found as that faithful and good servant unto you. So by your spirit, do a work in our heart, Lord. So we repent of any lukewarmness that is there, Lord. We ask you to take it away, remove it. May we be excited about being a believer, being a Christian, for we have the truth. May that go forth from our lives. So we thank you, Lord, for paying the price for us to have fellowship with you. And may we take advantage of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.